HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, November 14th and 15th, convening hemp industry stakeholders to learn, connect, and grow. Details at pahempsummit.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're going to be talking about something that maybe some of you even saw in the newspaper because amazingly enough, it was actually covered. And that is the controversy over Proposition 12 in California, which uh, mandated certain accommodations to animal welfare, most notably in the form of extra space for uh, for uh, hogs, uh, chickens, uh, laying chickens and veal calves. And uh, what made this notable was that the case, there was a case that actually went to the Supreme Court, uh, which heard the case on October 11th. Um, and that's where you might have seen the coverage. And of course, the National Pork Producers Council and uh, other uh, entities are suing um, California because they say that this, uh, because California will not accept animals that have been raised under conditions that differ from uh, those uh, mandated in Proposition 12. So to talk this all over, to chew the fat, as it were, I have invited Ron Martison, uh, a farmer in Iowa who I met a few years ago. Uh, he has a big uh, hog farm called A-Frame Acres in Elliott, Iowa, and uh, he's been, his family has been farming for five generations, with three generations currently working on the land. The Martisons have been farming sustainably and raising pigs humanely without antibiotics for Nyman Ranch since 2002. And that's how I met Ron, um, because I went to one of the fantastic Nyman Ranch uh, farmer appreciation dinners, or weekends, I should say. And Ron was kind enough to host the group at his farm and do a pig roast for us, which was fantastic. Also, Ron is a field agent for the company for over a decade and supports hundreds of independent family farmers. A field agent is somebody who goes out and actually helps farmers uh, achieve the Diamond Ranch standards. And in case you don't think those are real, I'm here to tell you they're real. So um, he also currently serves as a coach and a spokesperson for Nyman's farming community. And additionally, Ron oversees Nyman's farmer mentor program, which matches young and beginning farmers with more seasoned Nyman Ranch producers to provide guidance and support. And Ron, above all, is committed to letting pigs be pigs the way Mother Nature intended. So who better to talk about the implications of Proposition 12 and whether or not 
uh, you know, California should be allowed to tell pork producers in other states how they raise their hogs. And that is the crux of the issue. Am I right, Ron? Bingo. Get on. (laughs) So, you know, I I, I do get there eventually. It's like this sort of woolly path through my brain. Um, But eventually the, the point comes through. First, I'd like you to tell people a little bit about yourself and your farming operation, your hog operation. I'd be glad to, Katie. Thank you for giving me a chance to come and visit with you today. This is something oh, I feel very passionately about. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, if you would go about 45 minutes straight east of Omaha, Nebraska, you would head south on a little highway towards the town of Elliott, Iowa, and in the rolling hills of southwest Iowa is where our farm, which is called A-Frame Acres, is, is located. Denise, my wife, and I have been lucky enough to raise three children on this farm. I grew up on this farm. My mother grew up on this farm. Her parents, which were my grandparents and my great-grandparents, worked diligently to purchase this farm for us a long, long time ago. As things have evolved and as things have changed and as agriculture has shifted more towards what we consider the norm today, uh, we drew a line in the sand. Now, we did, yeah. did we decide to go backwards? Gosh, no, I'm not for one second gonna tell you we slid backwards. We drew a line in the, the sand. We decided that the, the humane care of the animals, the humane care of the land was what we wanted to do. And we wanted to make it our focus. And that honestly, we wanted to make that our forte. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, starting almost 40 years ago, we headed on this path that continues to grow, continues to evolve and continues to develop. And uh, I'm tickled to be here today. Well, you know what's interesting about your biography, and I don't want to get bogged down for too long, but but you kind of straddled, um, you know, 40 years ago. That was really when the hog industry began to consolidate in a very powerful, uh, contracted way, right? And Correct. a lot of a lot of farms went out of business, and and you were obviously, you know, had would have had to struggle, I'm assuming, um, to find ways to raise pigs in the way that you do at A Frame Acres. And A Frame, by the way, for folks who don't haven't seen a photograph of Ron's farm. Those are the the structures in which the the sows are or the hogs are housed out on pasture. So you know it's a little house for the pigs, and Correct. it's usually where you're farrowing, where your your mommy babe, your mommy pigs are raising their babies or having their babies and raising their babies. But I, I just want to I just want to draw the distinction between you deciding to go back to a more humane style rather than push forward with the consolidation, which implies, uh, you know, having pigs in uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, essentially, which is what dominates the Iowa landscape now. I mean, that's, a, that's a, a bold choice, my man. And so you started working with 2000, in 2002 with Nyman Ranch, but prior to that, that must have really been a struggle. No, it, it, well, it wasn't, it wasn't. It had its challenges, but it also had its, its defining moments, too. I mean, mm-hmm. you think about the landscape, actually, we go back further than 40 years, probably go back 50 years. That's when the initial transition began to happen. I mean, bigger was better, right? I mean, yeah. you think of the 70s and how agriculture shifted and began to pull away from what it had considered old-fashioned and outdated and tried to go in what they considered a more progressive direction. Mm-hmm. And we at home evaluated that choice and we at home and I say we at home I mean my dad and I my grandfather was gone by then but my dad and I decided that we were going to stay the course we were going to focus on uh, uh, sustainability but we didn't want to lose sight of profitability and as as pork production became more intense financially 
and less intense from a labor standpoint, we decided that maybe that was not the direction we wanted to go. So while for some people it was a struggle and a decision they decided not to deal with, for us, it was honestly a no-brainer. We went the direction we did, and you made a comment earlier about stepping backwards into the A-frame system. I choose to say we stepped sideways because I don't (laughs) think we, we gave up one thing by the decision that we made. No, I mean, clearly not because you maintain profitability. Uh, yes. Even prior to signing in with Nyman Ranch, and for people who aren't familiar with their program, and I don't mean to make this an infomercial for Nyman Ranch, but it is a company I do admire, um, people should know that Nyman Ranch guarantees a base price for the pigs. So uh, rather than being at the mercy of the commodity market, which is what most hog farmers have to deal with, uh, the Nyman Ranch farmers actually know exactly what they're going to get per pound uh, before they you know, start the season as it were. So it's a very different uh, model for agriculture than is typical of almost any branch of animal ag at this point, right? You have me on the program today, so you know I'm going to do nothing but toot Nyman Ranch's horn. <laughs> you just you just have to be prepared for that. <laughs> All right. So let's get into our, our actual topic here, which is uh, the Proposition 12, also known as the Farm Animal Confinement Act. Um, this was passed in 2018. Uh, by over 60% of the California vote. Um, and, you know, tell tell people exactly what this proposition codified uh, for animal welfare standards. Well, basically, the only part of, of pork production that is honestly affected by this is the gestation segment or the, the pregnancy of the mama pigs. All other aspects of pork production are left unaltered. But mm-hmm. what Prop 12 did was, say, keeping a mature pregnant pig in a cramped metal cage is wrong. I mean, think yeah. about it. Can you imagine putting an animal that can weigh over 500 pounds? Now, that's a big animal. Yeah. In a cage that's only two foot wide and seven foot long for up to 114 days. <laughs> yeah. No, that's it's unconscionable, actually. Yeah. I mean, in fact, now is a moment for us to review the social life, the intellectual needs, and the space requirements of your basic pig. I mean, nobody knows better than you what makes a happy pig. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, people don't realize how social uh, pigs can really be. And all you have to do is walk up to the fence here at home, and they'll come running up to you. They want to sniff you. They want to root at you. They want to chew on your clothes. They want to taste. They want to get to know you. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Another example is here on the farm, I've got... Uh, sister pigs who will accompany each other through all phases of their life that they'll even care for each other's babies you know really pigs or pigs play together they much like you see kids play together they're chasing each other they're they're grunting at each other they're they're uh, you know interacting with each other they're picking on each other they're touching each other and one of the key giveaways at least for me i think is when they go to sleep at night. A pig wants to be in contact with another pig. They want physical contact. And I have seen a pig off by himself go to great lengths to try to find another pig or another animal Mm. to snuggle up with at night because they don't like that barrier of not some sort of a physical contact. Right. So, so putting a pig in a crate for, you know, 114 days, in fact, amounts to what would be considered solitary confinement in the human prison system, right? And with the commensurate, uh, you know, emotional distress. I mean, I don't want to, you know, get all 
crazy about an anthropomorphized pigs. I don't know them that well, but I, I have actually seen a pig. I've seen a video of a pig operating a joystick to play a game on a computer. That's how smart they are for yes. starters. Right. Yeah. And oh, then yes. as you said, they have to have socialization. So prop, I, you know, I didn't realize Ron that, and thank you for clarifying that for me, that prop uh, 12 was really just about gestation crates. I had, I thought it was about just, but I guess when when else is a pig confined? I thought it would also uh, 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 attend to the um, space needs of pigs that are aggregated in concentrated animal feeding operations, where there's like you know twenty five pigs in a in a little sort of rectangular stall, essentially, or fifty yeah, pigs. Right. However, they do that. But okay, so anyway, right. so so Proposition Twelve was phased in this January, right? It took a while for people to get ready. Uh, to start raising their their sows out of of uh, farrowing crates. Explain why. Can you explain why the industry hair is on fire about this? And also um, give us a sense of really what the basis of the lawsuit uh, that is brought forward by the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau uh, against the state of California. I mean, there's there were numerous sort of. Um, I think that the thing that seemed to be the most plaguing for them was was the commerce clause in which uh, California said they wouldn't accept uh, hogs that were raised outside of these standards. Explain that and also what this changing structure part of it is. Well, this is uh, this is a um, half a dozen different questions you've thrown into one statement. As and usual. I, appreci- <laughs> I, 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 appreci- I appreciate that, but... Uh, let me say first and foremost that I honestly don't believe that Prop 12 is the true issue being ah. attacked. See, at the end of the day, um, Prop 12 is only in California, right? Right. I mean, think about it. I mean, one eighth of the pork that is consumed in the United States goes to California. Right. That's it. See, I think the hap- the apprehension or what might come next if this passes, is what the real issue is all about. See, I was listening to a talk show towards the tail end of last week on the, on a local radio station, and one of the commentators made the remark, these people, and by that he was talking about the, the people that support Prop 12, he said, mm. these people want to do away with all animal agriculture. And then he went on and on <laughs> and on about that, and I just chuckled to myself because to me that that says it all right there. They are so afraid of what the next step is going to be uh, when the Supreme Court approves Proposition 12. It's hmm. it's crazy. Uh, as far as the Commerce Clause, you know, I'm no lawyer. I'm just a simple old hog man. I spent <laughs> the bulk of my life uh, as a porcine waste management engineer. You know? <laughs> so that being said, um, as I see it, what California is doing is they are imposing the same regulations on the people that raise pigs in their state as they are expecting on people that are bringing pork into their state. So I, I, I guess I am obviously pro uh, Prop 12. So that's right. where I'm coming from. Well, you know, I mean, it, it's, I looked back to, um, I didn't want to get into the United Egg Producers, but back in 2011, and I know you remember this, um, and I think it was a similarly targeted uh, at, there was a very large um, egg producing uh, concern in Iowa, if I recall correctly, and they, the United Egg Producers uh, were 
forced to negotiate a deal with the Humane Society, which I guess brought a suit against them, in order to get these other farmers, including this particular large uh, concern in Iowa, uh, to produce, uh, to put egg-laying chickens in larger uh, cages. Because again, it was like, you know, animals stuffed into a cage where they couldn't turn around or spread their wings. Um, and they And they successfully negotiated a deal and it was really no big deal. And Everybody seemed to be able to negotiate the changing of structures, you know, inside these uh, aviary barns and so forth. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to me that this case has actually come to the Supreme Court um, to be decided about. And, and again, it, the issue was, why should California tell us how to raise our chickens in Iowa? Um, it's, a, it's absolutely an identical issue, uh, which seemed to be resolved without too much difficulty. So the Proposition 12 requires that farmers produce pork to these California standards, meaning no farrowing crates, in order to sell into that market. But what does that actually entail for a guy who's got, you know, who's who's invested in the gestation crates or farrowing crates um, that are in question now? What what do they okay, have to do to make that change? Let's let's clear something up right away, Katie. That sure. the only thing that's in Proposition 12 is the gestation crate, the farrowing right. crate. Has oh, been sorry. Left okay. un, un, unaffected at all? Oh um, my God! Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. No, so they the, can let's continue to farrow on that. And, so the farrowing, me. sorry, farrowing is when the animal is pregnant. No, farrowing is when the animal is actually having her babies oh, and where she babies. is housed while she's nursing her babies. The gestation uh, crate is sorry, where right. the crate that is used when the animal is pregnant, when the sow right, is right. pregnant. Excuse me. I, that, I, was, I mixed that up. Anyway, I see. <laughs> oh, jeez. Great. So, they, so she's still in a farrowing crate, but she's not in a gestation crate. Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. Correct. That's like, like when I said earlier that the only... The only part of modern day pork production that is affected by the Proposition 12 debate is the gestation stall that the sows use. And otherwise, every other aspect of conventional modern day pork production is not touched in one one iota with this. So so does the farmer have to invest in new equipment? Do they have to like retrofit their barns in order to accommodate this new uh, you know, regulation? What what is it what does it entail? I mean, is well, it a big deal or is it not a big deal? Well, it I depends. Mean, they, you know, they were whining about how a farmer is going to have to completely retrofit his equipment and it's going to be really expensive and who's going to take care of that and yada, yada, yada. I mean, if it's not really that big of an issue, why is that being pushed forward as a main part of this suit? I think maybe they're trying to use it as a selling point, but mm-hmm. it's what I said earlier. I mean, at the end of the day, one eighth of the pork produced in the United States goes to California, right? We've right. already established that 4%, or it's a common known fact, that 4% of the pigs that are produced in the United States every year right now already meet the Proposition 12 guidelines. Okay. For example, Nyman Ranch, who's a company that I sell into, uh, has never allowed the use of gestation crates and they've never allowed the use of farrowing crates. Right. And what we have done as farmers that work within that system, we have selected genetics or we've selected pigs that do very, very well without either the gestation crate or the farrowing crate. But what I'm saying here, I guess what I'm trying to draw attention to is that Mm -hmm. represents 4% of the pigs that are available right now. If there is an 8% need for pork from this country, not every pork producer in the United States is going to have to make this transition to meet the requirements of California and Proposition 12. (laughs) There There are already some of the bigger guys 
that have set the ball in motion to do this, to meet these demands. Right, right. Even including even Smithfield and uh, mm-hmm. Seaboard, yep. which I had never yep. heard of before, but yep. apparently they're the number two pork producer in the United States. Yep. That's another question. Like, how did they stay under the radar so well? Yes. I, I had literally, and you know, I wrote a book about the animal industry, about the animal agricultural industry. I mean, I have never seen that name before. I read it in uh, Leah Douglas's article for Reuters about this. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, <clears throat> that's another story. So, you know, if it, okay, so it's a very tiny fraction of farmers who may or may not be required to retrofit their stuff. Um, but, you know, when I hear an organization like the NPPC, the National Pork Producers Council, whinging about stuff like that, it does kind of beg the question of like, if that's an issue and these are your members, as it were, why isn't the industry, you know, Smithfield, the Tysons, the Seaboards and so on, why is it that the farmers are always left holding the bag on these things when in fact the profit that's being made is uh, being made by Smithfield, Tyson at all? I mean, I, I you know, that is something I've never really been able to understand why farmers have so little control over that stuff. Welcome to agriculture, yeah, <laughs> modern agriculture. I guess I that's guess the so. best way to say it. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's always been that way, though. You know, the farmers have done the lobbying, the farmers have done the grunt of the work, and then they're not necessarily ones that reap the rewards for doing that. That 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 is evidently true, given the state of farming and the consolidation of the industry. We're going to take a short break now for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Ron Marston. Uh, stay tuned. And uh, we'll have more to talk about with Proposition 12 and what it means. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Join us for the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit trade show and reception at the Farm Show Complex in Harrisburg on November 14th and 15th. Connect with industry stakeholders and grow the industry together through our 2023 industry planning sessions, industry and legislature panel discussions, success story sharing, professional development workshops, and a research showcase. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. Will climate change alter the beer and wine we drink? Come find out at Fern Talks and Eats in Brooklyn the evening of October 24th. The event will include a panel discussion with leading writers and makers, including wine writer Alice Fearing, Garrett Oliver, head brewer at Brooklyn Brewery, and science and nature writer Rowan Jacobson. Come taste the future with a special selection of beers and wines. More information and tickets are available at thefern.org. This episode is supported by HRN business member, the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Okay, so the NPPC, as I said, is arguing that the law unfairly harms uh, out-of-state hog farmers, and you have just blown that up. Um, And the advocates for Proposition 12... Uh, point out that producers, as you also pointed out, have the choice of whether or not to sell into California. But that brings me to the sort of nugget, w- which we touched on a second before the break, which is the the amount of control or lack of control that farmers have about how their product is marketed or how it is, you know, where it goes once it leaves their farm. I mean, it's, can you, I mean, outside of the Nyman Ranch community or some other sort of similar company that has arguably better standards, what, you know, when you sell your hog as a hog farmer, where it goes after that 
is not something that you have any control over, right? Correct. But what you do have a control over is establishing and setting the contracts that you sign and you do uh, abide by. And ultimately, those contracts will say where that animal is directed. And you have a choice if you can sell to to plant A, and then plant A will just um, present themselves as one that we will not sell into market X, or we will sell into market X. That right. is the, that is one avenue that you can use. And and this whole this whole argument about well, it would be too much of a hassle or too much of an inconvenience to mm-hmm. segregate this uh, pork is way too thin because think about how things have changed over the course of the last 20 years. 20 years ago, we just barely had an organic market for pork. 20 years ago, we just barely had an antibiotic free market for pork. And today those are prevalent and those are industry wide. If we can do that with those two key points, we can certainly do that with gestation crate free pork production as well. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I read a veterinarian's paper uh, in the state of California about how they're managing, uh, you know, granted, it's not a big hog producing state, but um, she was saying, you know, it's it's very easy to tag or tattoo the animals uh, so that you can, you know, put them on one rail if they're, you know, if they're Prop 12 and put them on another rail if they're not. And they do this already, as you just pointed out, with antibiotic free or whatever, but they also do it with like whether or not they have ractopamine, because for example, many pigs uh, in the conventional markets are raised using this beta agonist called ractopamine, which is illegal and banned in 165 countries around the world. Why we allow it in the United States, I don't know. But, um, you know, that they seem to be able to segregate for that. So that, again, is another completely hollow argument. But you said something really interesting uh, at the beginning of the show, which was that you fully expect the Supreme Court to side with the Biden administration, which is sided with the NPPC, um, and and to side in favor of um, of this of the National Pork Producers Council in d- disputing this matter, why do you feel that uh, that is so likely? And why is it? Why is the Biden administration supporting their their um, you know their position? I don't understand that. Well, I don't think I said that I. Was under the. I didn't. I don't. I don't believe I said what you. You think oh, if I did, really? I didn't. Misunderstood if, you. Oh, yeah. I apologize. No. I misunderstood. If if I did, I didn't mean to. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I I fully expect the Supreme Court to uphold Proposition Twelve. And of course, I'm a diehard optimist, and I will not contemplate <laughs> otherwise. Oh, I see. I misunderstood you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, that's no problem. But you know, I the as I said, the Biden administration is is on the NPPC side, and. Um, they seem to think that it has implications for, you know, states being able to mandate how their commerce goes forward and so forth. And they seem to want to make sure that states can't tell other states how to raise their, you know, whatever. I, I'm not sure I buy that or I don't understand the argument, I guess, is what I'm saying. I mean, I think states have always had a right to say what they want in terms of whether or not they're going to buy this product or that product or how that product should be should be raised. And... What do you think the implications are for animal welfare should the Supreme Court, in fact, side with the NPPC? Because there are lots of, you know, a lot of advocates are like, you know, oh, no, this is going to be a terrible thing. And it's going to roll back all sorts of uh, regulations that have been very helpful and useful in the past. What do you think would be the results of this? Well, it's without a doubt, it's going to be a kick in the pants if that happens. But aside from from the number of different things that have been prevented or avoided because we've been able to do this and states have been able to do similar things in the past. 
from an animal welfare standpoint, um, it will definitely be a battle lost. But you know as well as I do that uh, every now and then you lose a battle, but your ultimate goal is to win the war. I would yeah. like to point out already that the fact that this case has been brought before the Supreme Court, if nothing else good comes out of it, just think about how many more people have been exposed to this right. particular topic and this particular subject. Because one thing that I have found when I've been visiting with folks is people have no idea <laughs> that such an intelligent animal that as big as she is, is crammed into such a small metal or metal box for the bulk yeah. of her adult life. And they're all mortified or at the very least deeply disappointed and upset that number one, she is there, but number two, that they weren't aware of that. Right. Right. And, you know, I mean, it speaks to sort of the general unawareness <laughs> of the population about how food is raised, uh, no matter really what the product is. Um, the, right. I mean, the implications of, of uh, you know, monocropping. I mean, you in Iowa, you guys are, are reaping the, the rewards, as it were, for your heavily industrialized agriculture, both through soil degradation, water degradation, uh you know, loss of family farm, hollowing out rural communities. I mean, it's, it's really Iowa. I was saying to somebody the other day, it's like the, it's like the poster child for industrial ag run amok, right? I mean, I'm sure there are Bingo. other states that would qualify, but, but Iowa is really the one that is writ large in my mind because they're. You've done an awesome job of thumping on my key points right there, lady. Congratulations. <laughs> no, no, you're dead right. You see, at the end of the day, how do we put a value on cheap? Yeah. How do you put a value on the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, the size of New Jersey? Right. How do you put a value on the fact that we have empty, hollowed out communities that have nothing left in them, but maybe a bar and, and a convenience store? How yeah. do you put a value on that? I mean, that is not a positive value or a positive, positive implication any way you look at it, I don't think. I don't think so either. And, and, I, and I kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how uh, how one can convey to people who don't live in farm country, and certainly I don't. I mean, I live in rural Rhode Island now, but, um, you know, we, we, the state here is, is very actively uh, trying to recruit young farmers, uh, try, bending over backwards to make land available, uh, lots and lots of money flowing both through state and local government and foundations to uh, give farmers a helping hand and make sure that, um, you know, what we have left of agricultural land in this state uh, remains in smaller hands as opposed to being sold off to, you know, say a hedge fund or, <laughs> you know, or TIAA crap, right? I mean, because that's what's happened in Iowa. I mean, you guys, a lot of your land is now in the hands of these large corporations that have absolutely no personal stake uh, in maintaining a community or or even maintaining the safety of the water supply or or the arability of the land. I mean, Bingo. I don't yeah. know why, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like it, there's like it really does go back to that sort of fence row to fence row, get big or get out ethos of the 1970s. Because that was Earl Butts, right? Yep. Yep. Well, even even before Earl, I mean, Earl gets a gets a rap for it. But the general consensus uh, was before that, that we had too many farmers anyway. So we need to solve that problem. But all of a sudden, here we are in, you know, 2022. And the average age of a farmer is 59 years. Right. Uh, to me, that's frightening. That's scary. But we need to come up with progressive ways. We need to come up with opportunities for these young people to want to come home. We need to show them 
the opportunities are there. We need to give them the potential to do that. We need we need to give these young people a chance. Yeah. And one of the things that that I do like my son Michael, of course, you know, uh, falls into that category of the young ones, and uh, he has has been active in Nyman Ranch. And Nyman Ranch over the years has come up with uh, young farmer grants. They've come up with grants mm-hmm. to help young farmers get get gilts to get started. They, of course, have had their Next Generation Scholarship Foundation for years. And if you would compare the average age of a typical farmer to the average age of a Nyman Ranch farmer, you would be floored. The average age of a Nyman Ranch farmer is 43 years old. Now, to me, the fact that it's that young tells me that we're winning, tells me that we're getting it right, what we're doing could and can work. I mean, we did an impact report uh, a year and a half ago that demonstrated how much more we put back into the communities than the, than the traditional commodity pork production up to one and a half times as much. Right. We, right. we employ uh, one and a half times more local labor, which translates into more local input into local communities mm-hmm. and ultimately translates into better, healthier, you know, communities. Absolutely. Um, one of the things we haven't touched on, I'm going to touch on this before we're finished. Go for it. Is the big argument is that while well, these poor guys that are going to have to make these changes or make all these adaptations for Proposition 12 mm-hmm. aren't going to make any money doing that. And I'm going to say uh, bahui to that because what I see and what I understand is the folks like the Nyman Ranch farmers that have been doing that and continue to do that. For years now, me, mm-hmm. for instance, I've done it for over 20 years, are continuing to make money. If we educate the consumer and we educate the public and overall on what we're doing, why we're doing it and how we're getting it accomplished, they are willing to make the difference. They understand how important it is that we have the welfare of the animal. They understand how important it is that we make sure that this land is sustainable, reusable, and it's going to be available for the next generation. And they understand how important it is, as we do, that we bring the next generation home. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, that's why they're, Nyman Ranch is my favorite company to promote on this show. <laughs> and I'm an unpaid spokesperson. <laughs> sweet, sweet. Right? You betcha. <laughs> But I mean, you you bring me back to another one last point I wanted to address about the whole Proposition 12 standards, which is that this is actually a marketing opportunity. I mean, you pointed out that the antibiotic free market and the organic pork market didn't exist 25, 30 years ago. Um, and now it's a significant portion of the production line. And so like, why wouldn't uh, saying that I've raised my my pigs to Prop 12 standards, <laughs> such as they are, quite honestly, um, you know, is 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 something that you could really actually make money on and still be essentially working in the same conventional way, uh, save for the uh, loss of the gestation crate. I mean, right. I think it's a money making proposition if you're going to and, and then you, you all you're doing is taking away a, a structure. You don't have to put something in its place. Right. I mean, then the cow, the sow is just doing what she does. Well, here's the thing. I mean, she's going to need a certain amount of space, uh, space, whether or not it's, you know, confined to a gestation crate or it's it's loose housing or free freestyle housing. She's going to need something. But yeah, but, you know, so many people have said and I've heard the argument more than once that, well, we're going to have to to uh, redesign our structures of this, that because that requires more space requirements than what we're accustomed to or what we can allow for. And right. uh, 
four years ago when they first passed this back in 18, um, that's been four years ago. Think about it. That was right. quite a while back. And a typical hog structure doesn't have much more of a life than 10 to 15 years anyway. So technically, we are almost a third, if not a fourth of the way through, if a building was brand new in 2018, its mm-hmm. life structure so or the lifetime of its structure. So conceivably, we should be thinking or coming up with a different way to design the next one or the next retrofit to work within the building we've got. So we should be coming up with ways or willing to do ways to incorporate the uh, requirements of Proposition 12 as we go along. And yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, why isn't this a national standard anyway? You know, like this, why is this just California? It seems to me that it should be something that the whole, you know, that the whole community, as in hog producing community, just goes for. Like, right. as you said, your your existing structure, maybe however many years it's, it, it is, in, the, in your next iteration, you simply adapt to it to this uh, particular animal welfare standard. I mean, right. I, don't, I don't see it as that hard. And so then that makes me want to ask you the question of, like, how, how would that happen? Like, how could that become a national standard? Um, every state would have to sign on for that or – what, well, could there be a federal mandate? Th- yeah, go ahead. Let me ask you this. How do you eat a baby elephant? <laughs> well, I hope you never do. <laughs> One bite at a time. Yeah, right. And that's exactly right. what we're going to see. That's exactly what we need here. Right, you know, right. Like I alluded to, Proposition 12 is a huge benchmark. It's probably the most significant benchmark we've had in animal welfare as far as pigs are concerned in my lifetime that I can remember. Mm-hmm. And this is the beginning and we can only move forward from here up and onward. Right. Right. So if it requires every state doing it, then let's let every state do it. But right. at, at the end of the day, it needs to happen. And I think, and I honestly firmly believe at the end of the day, it will happen. Well, thank you, Ron. I think that's a great note to end this show on. Thank you so, so much for your time. Always a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoy it. And I'll call you the next time I have a special pig related question. <laughs> to dissect. <laughs> Or just yeah. to hear how life is going on the farm. I mean, I appreciate I'll never that. forget the visit there. Honest to God, that was like really a wonderful educational and heartwarming experience to visit your farm, see the, how happy your pigs are. I mean, they are truly people. It is just absolutely enchanting to see these little piglets running around after their mom in the field. I mean, it's this is what it's supposed to be for an animal where they're Worst day is their last day, right? I exactly. Mean, that's yep. what exactly. that's the Nyman Ranch way. Anyway, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, I hope all is well in the future for you. We'll talk again sometime soon. Well, thank you so much. Have a good one. Okay. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.